welcome to the Skin Depth Podcast, where we deliver the latest in dermatology research directly to you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Skin Depth Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Austin Black, and we'll go ahead and jump right in as we review issue 54 of the Skin Depth newsletter. We'll start with our first article from JAMA Dermatology. It is entitled, Oral Actretin Plus Topical Triamcinolone versus topical triamcinolone monotherapy in patients with symptomatic oral lichen planus, a randomized clinical trial. This comes to us from authors Vinay et al. Oral lichen planus, or OLP, is a painful inflammatory mucosal disease that causes ulcerative lesions in the mouth, may be associated with cutaneous lichen planus, or LP, and is often difficult to treat. This monocentric, placebo-controlled, double-blinded, randomized clinical trial involving 64 patients with symptomatic, defined as pain and burning, and overall decrease in the quality of life, oral lichen planus compared the efficacy of oral acatretin plus topical triamcinolone acetonide, or TAC 0.1%, to TAC alone in patients with symptomatic OLP. Response to treatment was assessed using the Oral Disease Severity Score, or ODSS, at 28 and 36 weeks. So what did they find? 84% of patients in the oral actretin plus topical TAC group achieved 75% reduction in ODSS at 28 weeks, with an 88% versus 47%, and a p-value of less than 0.001. And at 36 weeks, 84% versus 41%, with again a p-value of less than 0.001. 41% of patients receiving placebo plus topical TAC TAC alone achieved 75% reduction in ODSS. Relapse of disease during post-treatment follow-up at 8 weeks was low in both groups, 3% versus 6%. Some limitations here are that premenopausal women were excluded from the study. The adverse effects of acatretin could have potentially unblinded the oral acatretin plus topical TAC group in reducing bias. So our main takeaway here is the combination of oral acatretin and topical TAC was more effective in treating symptomatic oral lichen planus than topical triamcinolone monotherapy. Moving on now to JAD. Our article is entitled Efficacy and Safety of the Oral Janus Kinase 1 Inhibitor Povercitinib, or INCB 054707, in patients with hydronitis supertiva in a phase 2 randomized double-blinded dose-ranging placebo-controlled study. This comes to us from authors Kirby et al. Hydronitis supertiva, or HS, is a chronic inflammatory skin condition characterized by painful nodules and abscesses, often resulting in draining tunnels, tissue damage, and scarring. It is difficult to treat. While current treatment options include topical and oral antibiotics or biologics, such as aldilinumab, there is a need for new efficacious treatment for HS. This phase 2 randomized double-blind dose-ranging placebo-controlled study with 209 participants, examined the efficacy and safety of pulvercitinib in treating HS at doses of 15 mg, 45 mg, and 75 mg over 16 weeks. The primary and key secondary endpoints were the mean change from baseline in abscess and inflammatory nodule count, 
or AN, and the percentage of patients achieving HS clinical response at week 16, respectively. So what do they find? At week 16, the mean change from baseline in AN was negative 5.2, negative 6.9, and negative 6.3 for pulvercitinib at 15 milligrams, 45 milligrams, and 75 milligrams, respectively, versus negative 2.5 for placebo. And those all have statistically significant p-values for the 15, 45, and 75 milligram treatment groups. At week 16, the mean change from baseline and draining tunnel counts was plus 0.1, minus 0.8, and minus 1.1 for pulvercitinib, 15 milligrams, 45 milligrams, and 75 milligrams respectively, versus negative 0.3 for placebo. More patients treated with pulvercitinib achieved HS clinical response at week 16 versus placebo with 48.1% at the 15 milligram treatment, 44.2% at the 45 milligram treatment, and 45.3% at the 75 milligram treatment. And those all have statistically significant p-values. Treatment-related treatment emergent adverse events, or TEAE, occurred in 21.3% of patients receiving any pulvercitinib dose. 15 point, or the 15 milligram group reported 17.3%, 45 milligram group 24%, and 75 milligram group 22.6%. So what our main takeaway are from this is that pulvercitinib reduced abscess, inflammatory nodule, and draining tunnel counts over 16 weeks without evidence of an increased incidence of adverse events compared to placebo. Moving on now to our pediatric dermatology article. It is entitled Dermatologic Manifestations in Pediatric Patients with Inflammatory Bowel Disease. This comes to us from authors Arfredi, Bartoletta, and Tolofasone. Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, poses a significant healthcare burden among pediatric patients. Dermatologic manifestations are common in IBD patients of all ages, yet data regarding these conditions in pediatric populations remain limited. Previous studies categorized dermatologic manifestations into IBD-specific, such as perianal or orofacial, and nonspecific, such as reactive or malabsorption-related. But the prevalence in childhood IBD and its relation to disease severity remains unclear. Additionally, patients undergoing immunosuppressant and anti-TNF-alpha medication treatment for IBD are anticipated to have a heightened risk of bacterial, viral, fungal, and opportunistic skin infections. This retrospective review of 425 pediatric patients aged 0 to 18 with IBD investigated the prevalence of dermatologic diagnoses and their association with the disease severity among children with IBD. So what did they find? 425 pediatric patients with IBD were included in the study, consisting of 64.9% with Crohn's disease, 35.1% with ulcerative colitis, and with a gender disparity favoring males in Crohn's disease and females in ulcerative colitis. For patients with IBD, 42.8% of pediatric IBD patients experienced at least one cutaneous infection. The most prevalent non-infectious dermatologic diagnoses were acne vulgaris at 30.8%, atopic dermatitis at 15.8%, and perianal skin tags at 
Crohn's disease patients were more likely than ulcerative colitis patients to be diagnosed with angular chelitis, 7.2% versus 2.0%. Perianal skin complications, 20.3% versus 4.0%. And keratosis pilaris, 6.9% versus 0.7%. Ulcerative colitis patients were more likely than Crohn's disease patients to be diagnosed with fungal skin infections, 15.4% versus 8% and certain viral skin infections, 12.1% versus 6.9%. Treatment with certain medications was linked to different cutaneous infections with budesonide associated with higher non bacterial infections, 42.4% versus 17.3%, and methotrexate correlated with increased impetigo prevalence, 25.0% versus 4.3%. Increasing severity of IBD, was associated with a higher prevalence of certain dermatologic conditions, particularly in Crohn's disease patients, while psoriasis was the only condition significantly correlated with severe ulcerative colitis phenotypes. So what are our main takeaways here? This study found that acne was the most prevalent dermatologic condition in pediatric IBD patients, and a highlighted difference between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Crohn's disease patients were more prone to certain conditions like angular chelitis, KP, and perianal skin lesions, while ulcerative colitis patients exhibited a higher incidence of fungal infections, emphasizing the importance of early recognition for improving skin-related outcomes in this population. Moving now to the British Journal of Dermatology, our article is entitled Intravenous Gentamicin Therapy Induces Functional Type 7 Collagen in Recessive dystrophic epidermolysis below subpatients, an open-label clinical trial. This comes to us from authors Woodley et al. Recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, or RDEB, is a widespread blistering disorder caused by nonsense mutations in the gene that encodes for type 7 collagen. Currently, there are no curative treatments for RDEB, and available therapies are focused on supportive care in vitro and early in vivo studies suggest that gentamicin may improve wound healing in RDEB through induction of collagen 7 production. In this study, the author sought to investigate whether systemic administration of gentamicin may benefit wound closure in patients with RDEB. They administered IV gentamicin for 14 days consecutively to three patients and two out of the three patients received additional IV gentamicin weekly for a total of 12 weeks. What did they find? IV gentamicin significantly increased production of collagen 7 as visualized in skin biopsies post-treatment. The new collagen 7 persisted for at least six months post-treatment. Administration of IV gentamicin improved wound closure at one month and three months post-treatment. In this study, no significant ototoxicity or nephrotoxicity was observed in response to IV gentamicin. So what are our main takeaways here? IV gentamicin restored production of functional collagen 7 in the skin of patients with RDEB. Moving now to our New England Journal of Medicine question of the week. It reads, An otherwise healthy 42-year-old woman presented with a 10-day history of a rash in her axilla and on her groin and abdomen. One and a half weeks before the onset of the rash, she had started taking dexketnoprofen, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. 
at a dose of 25 milligrams per day to treat knee pain. She reported no fevers, mucosal lesions, or symptoms other than mild pruritus. On physical examination, symmetric patches of reddish-purple skin with peeling borders were present in the cervical and axillary regions, the abdominal and inguinal regions, and the interinginous area of the back. What drug class is the most common trigger of this rash? Our answer choices are 1. Angiotensin receptor blockers, 2. Beta-lactam antibiotics, 3. Estrogens, 4. Fluoroquinolones, and 5. Sulfonamides. The correct answer here is answer choice 2. Beta-lactam antibiotics. The key to the physician examination is noting the distribution of this rash as flexile flexural or enterogenous, i.e. in the folds such as axilla, groin, etc. Given this distribution and the recent drug history, a diagnosis of systemic drug-related enterogenous and flexural exanthem, or SDRIFE, was made. SDRIFE is a drug-induced eruption that is characterized by the presence of symmetric erythema in the enterogenous and flexural areas and by the lack of systemic symptoms. Beta-lactams are the most common causative agent, in addition to medications such as macrolides and NSAIDs. Withdrawal of the offending agent, in addition to topical steroids, are used for management. Moving now to our dermoscopy question of the week, I will again describe the image that is presented, and then we will go through the question itself. So before me is a semicircular lesion, seems to have a slight sheen to it. Um, looks like there might be some like peripheral dots or radial linear capillaries is what it might be. Um, and some, some scaling kind of diffusely throughout the lesion is um, kind of a pink in color with a white lattice-like structure pattern throughout the lesion. Um, again, kind of noting that scale that seems to be present throughout. So the question itself reads, what is the next best step in treatment for a person with a mild case of this? And our answer choices are one, or A, phototherapy, B, topical steroids, C, topical retinoids, D, observation, E, both phototherapy and topical steroids, F, topical steroids and topical retinoids, or G, topical steroids, topical retinoids, and observation. So it's kind of a, a two-part question. So one, the diagnosis needs to be reached, and then once that diagnosis is reached, kind of knowing how to treat that would, what would be the next step and kind of what this question is asking. Um, so the lesion in question is lichen planus, which we tend to think of five Ps, so kind of purplish, um, violaceous, like a polygonal shaped or um, flat topped small papules located on the forearms, things of that nature. Uh, on dermoscopy, you'll see a, a surface with a slight, slight sheen, um, kind of this network of white fine lines. Some people know it as Wickman striae, um, and these are classically seen in, in lichen planus. Um, their absence should not exclude the diagnosis of lichen, lichen planus, um, but it is often seen. 
Typically, you often see some peripheral dots and linear radial capillaries, um, as well as some pigmented dots that might be scattered kind of on the periphery as well, in addition to some diffuse scale. So kind of to summarize, the main dermoscopic signs um, for lichen planus are the Wickman striae, some vascular structures, especially red dots and radial capillaries, and then hyperpigmentation, kind of a, a brownish diffuse or deeper dotted patterns throughout the lesions. Um, kind of of note here, not only can dermoscopy be useful in diagnosis, but it can help evaluate the response to treatment. The vascular structures and Wickman striae tend to disappear, but the dotted pigmentation is typically not responsive to treatment. Um, so now that we know all of this, we can figure out the answer to our question, which again is what's the best treatment for this lesion, and we now know that that is lichen planus. So the correct answer to this is F, which includes options B and C. So F um, being topical steroids and topical retinoids. The main goal in more mild cases is to manage the pruritus associated with lichen planus. However, sometimes treatment isn't even necessary and lichen planus can be self-limiting. For more severe cases, consideration can be given to systemic treatment such as with steroids, hydroxychloroquine or methyltrexate among others. Some of our other choices are incorrect because these types of lesions are typically triggered by sun exposure. So on the reverse side of that, sun protection, including and especially the use of sunscreen, is an essential component of treatment for patients presenting with lichen planus. With that, we will go ahead and transition over to our student spotlight for the week. And we'll hear what their research they've been working on lately. Hello, my name is Caroline Krutoff, and I am a second year medical student at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. For this week's student spotlight, I'm excited to share my team's recent publication with you entitled Dermatophyte Infections Worldwide, Increase in Incidence and Associated Antifungal Resistance, led by Dr. Ahmed Gamal and Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum. In this publication, our team sought to understand the recent trends in dermatophyte infections from both an epidemiological and a clinical perspective, as well as the growing trend of antifungal resistance among many dermatophyte strains. With a focus on tinea infections, we performed a literature review to examine the current limitations and failures of standard antifungal treatments, the emergence of drug-resistant dermatophytes, and the diagnostic challenges faced by clinicians. We highlighted the importance of antifungal susceptibility testing and molecular diagnostic methods and proposed new pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments. These include aphenoconazole topical 10% solution, luliconazole topical 1% cream, tavaborol topical 5% solution, and yttrium aluminum garnet laser therapy. Our team found that this growing trend of antifungal resistance among dermatophytes represents both a major global health and economic challenge, which must be addressed through innovative research with the development of new treatments. In the clinical setting, providers must be aware of the various dermatophyte organisms that cause tinea infections and which strains are becoming resistant in order to adequately diagnose and treat these infections. Many dermatological conditions can mimic tinea infections and may be treated inappropriately with topical corticosteroids or immunosuppressive agents. 
I found this study interesting as throughout medical school, I have loved learning about all the various bugs and drugs, especially the ones that are relevant to the dermatology field. I really enjoyed learning about the antifungals and was able to deepen my knowledge on their clinical use through this research. Before starting this study, I was not too familiar with dermatophytes and was unaware of the major threats they are posing worldwide, with many countries being disproportionately impacted. In doing this study, we changed our aim of focus multiple times. We started with the broad topic of cutaneous mycoses and eventually narrowed it down to focus on superficial infections caused by dermatophytes. The project continued to evolve over the course of months through our many manuscript revisions until we finally felt that we had a strong final manuscript to submit. As a medical student, what I learned from doing this research was to be persistent. The final manuscript took multiple edits and re-edits, which, which required time and patience. I also learned how to advocate for myself, express my passions, and highlight my abilities and strengths. If you have an interest in something, don't be afraid to share that with others. I was initially working in a research laboratory with the aim of focusing on my day-to-day bench work there, when my interest in dermatology prompted a discussion about additional research I could engage in, and I was ultimately approached with the idea to lead a project. This was the first research manuscript that I assisted in writing, and the entire writing experience was definitely a challenge that I proudly overcame. As the primary author who submitted this manuscript to our selected journal, I learned so much about the publication process and found this experience to be one of the most rewarding in my academic career thus far. If you are interested in doing research, don't be afraid to express your specialty interests to others and try to make as many connections as you can, even outside of your academic or professional setting. You'll be surprised at what might come from it. Check out the link to our publication in the show notes for this episode, and thank you for listening. Thank you, Caroline, so much for sharing that with us. That's exciting research that you and the team have been able to to do over in Cleveland. We appreciate you for sharing that with us. With that, we will wrap up our episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We thank you for joining us. As always, feel free and check out the show notes where we will include some links to the website, some of the articles that were featured in this issue as well as um, the option to sign up for the newsletter to be delivered directly to you in your mail inbox. Again, we thank you for joining us, and we hope you will join us for our next episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Skin Depth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed please send us any questions or comments to info at skindepthderm.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.